This is a 720 to go podcast from Chicago's WGN Radio 720. This podcast is sponsored by ADM. As one of the world's largest agricultural processors, ADM is uniquely positioned to serve the world's growing needs for abundant food and renewable energy. ADM. When it comes to the business of America's farmland, you need the information from the people who know it best. That's why we bring you AgriCast with Orion Samuelson and Max Armstrong. And good morning, Roger. Good morning, world, as we get together for our weekly visit to talk about the world's most basic industry, providing food and a lot of other things now for uh, people who live on the planet Earth as we talk about going to the moon once again. But anyway, good to be with you on this Saturday morning, and uh, we're in the midst of summer, as you heard, with summertime temperatures. And so we'll be talking a little bit about weather and its impact on gardens, and uh, Jim Fazell will be joining us here in a minute or two. We're also going to check in for market commentary this morning with Dale Durkholz, who will be sitting down with Max Armstrong to talk about markets and how you deal with a situation that most farmers and most analysts and most traders have not experienced the kind of a spring that we've had thus far, delaying the planting. And now the question is, will it delay the growth of the plants? So we'll be talking about that this morning here on the show, and we hope you'll stay with us for that. So Jim Fazell standing by in the studio, and uh, he'll join us here when we continue on the Saturday morning show. Jim Fazell joins us here on the Saturday morning show, and uh, golly, we've gone through too much rain and now too much heat. What's it all doing to us, Jim? Well, it's not necessarily good, I guess, for corn farmers that got corn in. In fact, I was up in parts of the state uh, uh, earlier this week, and I found a lot of beans, but darn little corn. I suppose a lot of people just gave up on it. Nonetheless, uh, we've had a lot of heat. Uh, Some spots got rain. In fact, this past week uh, on Thursday, we had a rainstorm that came through our place, and we got over two inches of rain, but we had not had any rain. We'd had less than a half of an inch of rain in nearly a month. Um, I've talked to Greg, as I mentioned, uh, Greg Solier, our wonderful weather guy, and he said uh, we can expect more of this. This is this is what we're going to get this summer. But anyway, for this weekend, you know, we're going to have some really hot weather. It's supposed to be hot as can be today. Um, and, but there are things we can do, even if we only get out in the garden very early in the day when it's still a little bit cool to see what's going on. Um, in fact, I probably won't want to be out in the garden very much at all today. But I, it's a good time to get some some indoor work done. And, you know, gardening isn't just going out in the gardening. It takes a lot of planning and thought to do it well. Um, it's time to do some of this planning and to do some record keeping. You want to do that when the garden's at its best, if you can. And the gardens should be in the best right now. If we've been taking care of them, even though many of them got in late, uh, they should be right at their peak. In fact, it might be time to take some photographs if it looks really nice. Um, and then start a journal. That's something that I've done for many, many years, and I can tell you back in uh, 20 years ago what we had in the garden, how it did, and what the weather was like. You need to record in your journal your successes. Record the varieties that you planted that did well. But in addition, maybe even more important, you want to record your failures. 
if you record the the failures, that means you're not going to make that mistake again. And one of the things that got me started recording failure or recording uh, or journaling was the failures, where I planted the same thing two or three in the years and said, "Gosh, why did I do that again?" Well, if you have a record that it was a failure, you're not likely to do that. But you do need to indicate the weather conditions, the watering, uh, the fertilizer program you used, the varieties. You need to note those varieties, the dates that you planted them, the date that you harvested, any of the pests and so forth that may have bothered that particular variety, and the varieties that did fail. Um, Make a diagram of the garden that you have right now, this year, especially the vegetable garden, so that you can identify where the plants are, where you planted them. This is particularly important on some types of plants where you need to rotate them, not planting them in the same place each year. Even if you have a 20 by 10 foot garden, uh, rotating is very important with some things like uh, tomatoes and and maybe squash because uh, the diseases and insects that affect them uh, are carried along in the soil. If you plant them in a different place the next year, those diseases are going to have a hard time finding them or those insects. Uh, Begin to make your first plans for your next year's garden as well, especially the vegetable garden. Uh, Make a preliminary drawing so you know where you're going to put that stuff so you don't plant it in the same place. Indicate the kind of plants. Uh, You want to keep in mind, too, you don't want to plant stuff that you're not going to use. The important thing of a with a vegetable garden and all the effort that you go to is to get stuff that you can use, things that you're going to eat. Now, if you don't like uh, zucchini, don't plant zucchini or eggplant. I happen to like both of them, so we do grow both of those. But put put in your your design for next year those things that you're not going to plant in addition to the things that you're going to. Prepare your seed list. The seed catalogs are going to come out in the middle of winter, and if you have your list put together, you can get in on some of the bargains early. List all the plants that you need to buy as started plants, and that you need to have in hand uh, when the garden center is open a year from now. Now, in the flower gardens and the borders, you do need to do planning for next year. Uh, get prepared, prepared, first of all, to divide the perennials. Many of them get overgrown after two or three years. Uh, you need to indicate uh, things that need to be in your garden plan uh, divided, uh, where you're going to put the extra parts, where you're going to get rid of things, and so forth. Uh, late summer is a good time to begin dividing. In fact, it's the prime time for many of these things. Before you divide, you need to be sure that you know what is where. Now, the way you handle that is that you label, the stake and label an ID, the perennials, the bulbs, and so forth, because when it gets time to divide these, the flowers are going to be gone. You may forget what was there. So while they're in bloom, you need to identify them and put a stake out there with a label on it that says this is a red daylily. This is a um, a purple echinacea, so that when the time comes to divide and plant, transplant, you know what you have and where it is. Also, you need to make some notes. Those plants that got too tall, maybe they're in the front. They need to be moved to the back because they're hiding smaller ones. Colors that are incompatible. Not very likely in the flower garden, but it can happen. Then draw your plan as it is now, and preferably to scale if you can get some graph paper to do that. Then drive, uh, uh, draw your revised plan, incorporating the corrections and the revisions and the additions. Incidentally, when we divide things, we generally have more than what we need. It might be a good time to find neighbors and so forth who are looking just exactly for that plant that you have too much of so that when you 
remove that or, or reduce the amount that you have, you're not going to just have to throw it away. Sometimes uh, if the stuff is really, really clean and nice, you don't really want to get rid of it. And if you don't have enough room in your own yard, it's nice to have some place to put it. Now, one thing I want to mention, a lot of us have gone through the annuals where we plant them every year, and eventually we get tired of doing all the planting. So if you're just starting to get from an annual garden to a perennial garden, there's some things that you might think about. First of all, if you have room to do it, it might be a good idea to set out plants in rows to see how they grow. How big is the second issue going to get? Um, how much is this uh, daylily going to spread and so forth? After a year or so, maybe even two years, uh, uh, you're going to find out that this is a very important part of your perennial garden because uh, even though you may move things into the garden that have, have done well, you want to have room to try some new things. And if you don't have really a uh, place in the garden to do that, it's nice to have this row hidden someplace where you can do your research and find out what's going to grow the best where you are. Um, the perennial gardens, I might say, uh, when, when we're talking about perennial gardens, they're never finished. They're always uh, a journey. It's not an end product because I don't care how good you are at planting these things, you're going to want to make changes. And that's part of the joy of a perennial garden is that it is never finished, uh, and it's not an end in itself, but it's a journey. Now, out in the lawns, there are a few things that you need to do um, when you're doing your planting. Identify those places that dried out too fast this, when we've had this dry weather, but also identify the spots that flooded last spring. You may need to do some filling. Uh, and it's not going to be long before we're, we're into the prime planting time for lawns. That starts about the middle of August. So you want to have your plants made for that. Anyway, planting is an important part of gardening. Uh, it's, a, it, it's an enjoyable part of gardening, thinking about what's going to be and what is. And uh, we need to take advantage of the moments that we have to do that. A hot, steamy day outdoors when you really don't want to be out in the garden is a perfect time to take advantage of the moments that you have to do some planning. And I have to tell you that my South Side Chicago wife, who had never been on a farm until we married, is turning out to be quite a farmer. She's got a great uh, cherry tomato uh, crop going on the back patio, and her hibiscus flowers this year are just magnificent. Good. You know what? There's a joy. I don't care how big your farm is or how small your farm is. There's a joy in getting out and so-called walk the rows, see what's happening, and 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 smell the flowers and see the produce that are, the stuff that's coming off that you've invested your time and energy. And that's why a lot of us just we garden because we enjoy those wonderful moments that that you can have out in the garden. Still a very popular sport in the U.S., isn't it? It really is. I think more than half the people in the country do gardening. Okay. Well, Jim, thank you, as always, for your weekly report. We'll check in with you again next week. I'll be here. Jim Fazell, specialist in ornamental horticulture, with us here on the Saturday Morning Show. 19 minutes after 5 o'clock here on this Saturday morning on the Saturday Morning Show. A week ago, I finally got Air Orion in the air after a long layoff this year. We just didn't have functions to attend that required plane traffic. But last week, I flew up to Barocco, Wisconsin in Vernon County. That's the area where I grew up to attend a couple of reunions, class reunion and a family reunion. 
And the thing that I always enjoy about uh, flying in Air Orion, we fly at about 4,500 to 8,500 feet. That gives us a much better look at what's happening on the ground beneath us than you can see from an airliner at 35,000 feet. One of the many fascinating things I saw was the fact that as we took off from the airport, the landings at Huntley, Illinois, and flew toward Wisconsin, we could see the impact of the spring rains and the flooding and the ponding in the fields. Now, even though they may have dried out, you can easily see them because there's nothing growing there. They didn't get planted because it was too muddy to get uh, the equipment in to do the planting. But when I got to Wisconsin, the state line and crossed over into the state, the number of ponded areas diminished greatly. And that came as kind of a surprise. The other thing that uh, I had the opportunity to experience last week, the flood that basically wiped out the town next to our farm, Uh, and where I went to high school. Ontario, Wisconsin had tremendous flooding uh, several months ago. Basically, the square where they played baseball, the community hall where I attended my first prom and where I walked across the stage to receive my high school diploma and uh, where I sat on stage during basketball games to do the PA announcing of the basketball games, that had five feet of water in the building. And it's a historic building. As a matter of fact, it's on a couple of lists because of the unusual roof treatment that it has. But it's going to have to be torn down. It will be taken away because it's in a floodplain. You can't get any government funding to rebuild it there. And uh, so it looks like that building that is now 81 years old, uh, will be gone. And uh, that's one of the sad things, plus all of the people who had businesses, a grocery store, a restaurant, all of that flooded completely in Ontario, Wisconsin. And then uh, talking to my sister on the phone in Westby, Wisconsin, uh, yesterday she told me that the night before Seven inches of rain fell in Ontario and that part of western Wisconsin. Seven inches of rain. So once again, a town that's been all but flooded away got another shot of flooding that, uh, again, wiped out any progress they had made in putting a park back together and all of the other things. So a little bit of sad news from the area where I grew up. Luckily, our farm was on the ridge, so we didn't have flooding uh, when I was a kid, but certainly the valleys and the creeks and the rivers certainly would flood from time to time. But this, this one in the past year, the worst ever, I think, that we have seen in that part of the country. So a little bit of my boyhood uh, memories gone because of Mother Nature. But what's Mother Nature doing to the crops now? Well, it's time to check in with Max Armstrong and find out what's happening, Max. 
We've enjoyed over the past few weeks getting field reports from the technical service representatives of BASF. Been getting some great guidance from them. And to share some guidance with us this weekend is Paula Halabicki, BASF technical market manager. We understand there's a new fungicide in the arsenal at BASF. There is actually a few new fungicides with a brand new active ingredient. Uh, our active ingredient is Revisol fungicides, and the new brands that you can be watching for are Revitec fungicide in soybean and Veltima fungicide in corn. What makes Revisol and the related products different from other fungicides already on the market? So looking at the Revisol active ingredient in particular, this is a member of the group 3 class of fungicides. Uh, so fungicides are actually classified based on their mode of action, similar to how we do for herbicides. And within this particular group, the group threes or the, the DMIs, um, Revisol actually performs quite different from anything that we've seen before. So it provides broader spectrum of activity on a wide range of crops, provides stronger activity on those key diseases that matter most, and it provides longer performance than we've seen with any of these group three fungicide active ingredients in the past. Longer performance, that's interesting. It can uh, help uh, protect that yield a little bit longer than you're saying. It does, yeah. So Revisol really brings this length of activity over a broad spectrum of diseases. And when we combine that with our other active ingredients, um, we're seeing you know, very effective disease control as well as the BASF plant, plant health benefits that our customers have come to expect. And in fields that I was in last year in Illinois, you know, even 50 days after application, that corn just looked absolutely beautiful, as I, as I kind of put it. Um, and you could honestly pick out every single treatment of Veltima in that case in those trials. How will Revisol be available to growers? We just received registration, and we continue to receive state registrations um, pretty much daily at this point. And so Revisol will be avail- available to our growers in a number of different formulations, so Revitec and Veltima, as I mentioned, for the 2020 season. Um, but we do have a number of trials out this season as well that we would um, encourage everybody to get out to to take a look and experience Revitec and Veltima in their own fields. So is it expected, Paula, that these products will be available then for the 2020 season? That's correct, yes, available for our 2020 season. But you should be able to see the results in some plots, I would imagine, that that retailers have. Is that correct? Exactly, yeah. So we actually are going to have over a 1,000 trials across the country with growers and retails this year. Um, And so do watch out for our BASF showcase plot tours where you'll be able to see Revisol brands in action. So is there a website that uh, folks could check, Paula, to get more information about this newest fungicide? Absolutely. If you visit www.agriculture.basf.com or visit um, any of our local representatives. Very good. Thanks for the visit, Paula. Nice talking to you. Thank you. Have a great day. Paula Halabicki, BASF Technical Market Manager. It's the Saturday morning show here on WGN Radio Chicago. And with the technology we have today, we'll say good morning to you if you're in Europe or in Asia. Because with technology, this WGN signal travels all over the world. A little bit later on, I'll go through the list of the five big outdoor farm shows that uh, will be coming up in just well, a short period of time, about a month from now. And uh, five of the big outdoor farm shows that I've attended over the years. And so if you still have questions about farm progress, half century of progress, Ohio Farm Science Review, uh, stay with us and we'll pass along those dates and locations 
again. And county fairs, Kane County Fair in St. Charles on this weekend. It'll wind it up tomorrow. That's the first close-in county fair here in the Chicagoland area, Kane County Fair in St. Charles. And thanks for that hot forecast, and uh, we'll continue to live with it and hope the power doesn't go out. I really feel for some of those cities that have lost basic areas of power for their consumers and residents, so I'm hoping that won't happen to us. Of course, having grown up uh, in the age when we had no air conditioning on the farm, we depended on Mother Nature, and she, well, didn't treat us well many times with temperatures either up or down. But we're back with the Saturday morning show, and Max will be taking a look at market activity with Dale Dirkholz. But right now, it's time for Samuelson Says, I'm Orion. This week, updating my congressional scorecard. Hey, this is John Williams with this heat we're experiencing. Is your home staying cool enough? If not, it could be those leaky old windows and doors. Call Next Door and Window today. They'll determine the problem areas that should be addressed. And right now, buy one, get one 30% off on all windows and doors, plus 18 months of interest-free financing. Call 1-800-NEXT-DOOR to schedule a free evaluation or go to 1-800-NEXT-DOOR.COM. Next Door and Window, thousands of options, one I've been receiving emails from some of you asking, what is the status of your congressional scorecard? And you may recall a couple of months ago, I started my congressional scorecard to keep track of what Congress is doing, or more importantly, what it is not doing. And I think you can answer the question for me as we continue to wait for Congress to stop investigating and start legislating important issues. Do we have immigration legislation? No. Do we have legislation to approve the Mexico-Canada-U.S. trade agreement? No. Do we have any discussion on other trade issues with Japan, Korea, or the European Union? No. Mexico and Canada approved the revised North American agreement late last year, but House Speaker Pelosi will not bring it to a vote until she gets what she wants for labor in the agreement. And I often wonder if she realizes the importance of agriculture, particularly since she lives in the number one agricultural state in the nation, California. The Department of Labor said last week it's going to make the H-2A program for bringing migrant farm workers into the U.S. easier and more user-friendly. Agriculture in California and other states badly need help on that issue because they produce crops that can only be harvested by hand. And most of us Americans won't do the hard work. It's back-breaking to get those crops to dinner tables in wintertime. And now we are just a few weeks away from the annual six-week recess, I call it vacation, that Congress takes. They take a summertime break in August every year to go back to their district to campaign, to keep their positions, which many feel should be a lifetime position, 
I would refer to it as a job, but I think most of them are not doing their job, just holding positions. But I am finally getting some help on this issue from a number from a member of Congress. I watched a speech recently delivered on the Senate floor by the junior senator from Missouri, Senator David Hawley. In essence, he said in a very passionate speech, he said to his fellow senators, we are not doing what our voters sent us here to do. And I'm ashamed at our lack of progress in dealing with many issues that deserve our attention. Amen, brother. Time to legislate, not investigate. My thoughts on Samuelson Says. On the, on the Saturday morning show here on WGN Radio, and uh, we're going to check in with Max Armstrong to talk markets with Dale Durkholz when we continue on the Saturday morning show. It's good to see an old friend in the studio. We'll look at the business card and we see the same name but a different affiliation. Grain Cycles. The firm, the consultant is none other than Dale Durkholz. Yeah, I uh, officially retired from corporate life back in the middle of June and uh, using Grain Cycles. It's an old handle I'd used on Twitter and uh, right now I'm in the process of setting up a blog on WordPress under the same name as well. So going to continue to do consulting, do some speaking, whatever the case. So folks would follow you, best follow you through Twitter then. Uh, They can go to Twitter, but shortly they can go over to the blog on WordPress. There will be a link from Twitter back to WordPress anyway. That's what I figured. Well, now that we have that out of the way, let's talk about what uh, the markets are looking at here. We sure don't hear much about China anymore, do we? Markets are not at all interested, it appears, right now. We've gotten tired of the topic. The markets are more interested in China, you might think, but it's really on a different twist. You know, the whole trade issue has gone to the background. I think people finally got into the mode that, you know, this is going to be a long-term process to get resolved, and this isn't going to unfold rather quickly after everything broke down last spring. But I think the big issue with China right now really has to do with African swine fever and understanding that, the impact it's going to have on their meat demand, the impact it's going to have on their meat imports, and what residually that means to oilseed demand in other places to the world to feed livestock that it's going to end up producing meat to ship to China. So it's a a lot different picture. So the demand for grains will still be there. The demand for soybeans will still be there, but it will be a little more spread out in the world, you're saying. Yeah, I think that's really the key. And, you know, it really comes back into the game game and the insight here of trying to understand African swine fever and what impact it is going to have on changing world trade flows. You know, because the situation in China, because of the nature of their pork industry per se, still having a lot of small producers involved in it, means that this may be a process that unfolds for quite a long time. And the example I give people, it took Spain and Portugal 30 years to eradicate African swine fever. I mean, there's been talk here that this is a five-year thing, that maybe they'll be rebuilding in five years in China. You you question that. Well, they could restart to rebuild hog herds, but the question becomes, you know, how successful are it going to be because you have to put a lot of uh, restrictions in place to maintain your environment, to keep your, your own production facility somewhat clean so that you don't keep re-exposing yourself to it at this point in time. So that's really an unknown, especially with a country like China that has an industry 
industry that doesn't have the environmental standards even like we do and, and the controls like we have in the major hog producing units here in the U.S. What will those backyard uh, pork producers in China be doing in the interim? Will they shift into something else? That we don't know at this point. That's going to be an interesting twist. The other twist, China's always been a big hog producer, a big pork consumer. Do we see their taste change? Do they go and rotate away from pork and start consuming more chicken, maybe even more beef? So there's a lot of moving parts to this whole situation in China. When does that near-term hole in protein uh, really show up in China. Are we just weeks away from that? I've heard a lot of people talking about August. What's your feeling? On you know, that? That, that's that's really one thing that a lot of people are really trying to look at. Uh, you know, we, we've, we've had a lot of hogs slaughtered so over in China, so we've had a lot of this meat end up going through their, their retail system, so to speak. But the other thing that really is a little bit more cloudy in China is how much pork or other meats do they have in storage at this point. You know, we've had a lot of stories about containers of meat being shipped to China, and those containers not coming back. And what's happened is those containers have been used as a storage unit. So with this at this point in time, we really don't have a good feel for how much meat is in storage and what that means. But I think we're probably weeks, maybe two, three months away. And that's really the key. You know, every month people look at the um, the, the soybean import numbers in China. I think the key is start watching those meat import numbers, and they come out at the same time. Did the U.S. pork industry jump the gun a little bit here? We're, we're seeing uh, significantly higher production, uh, higher than the industry had been expecting, at least yeah, analysts had expected. Well, in one sense, yeah, maybe because we had that big surge in prices, you know, back late winter and into the beginning of spring, which we fell off of quite hard. But the other ingredient there is the economics of hog production was so good. So why would you not be expanding, especially when you looked at those high-priced fall-winter hog futures and, and we had cheap grain at the time? You could lock in your production all the way out into early 2020 at profitable levels. So, yeah, they may have jumped the gun. Yeah, we're paying the price for it or have a little bit here, and we may still a little bit into the fall. But, you know, again, you go back and things will find a balance. The question is how much pork will China buy from the U.S.? And we always have to remember, today there's still a 62% tariff on U.S. pork into China. Speaking of locking in 2020 production, as you referred to it there, and shifting commodities a little bit, and the grains, how have producers done at that? Uh, 2020 per se, I don't know that a lot of people have really looked at it. I think people have kind of dabbled in it a little bit. I don't think aggressively. I think people are still in the mode of trying to figure out what to do with the 19 crop. And some of the 18 crop. Yeah, I was going to say, if you go out to the eastern corn belt in particular, or if you go out to South Dakota, where 18 corn became 19 corn because they didn't get a lot of acres in the ground. But, you know, I don't think there's been a lot of focus. I think more it's been really the attention on the 19. What's a good price? When do I sell it? How do I manage this? What really is the picture? And we still don't know. We're getting back to rallies of the past, and there is such a tendency to go back to those analogous years. We want to talk about years when there has been a market rally. We want to talk about 83, 88, and so on. This rally has had a very, very different feel to it, hasn't it? I mean, we haven't seen an upper limit move, followed by an upper limit move, followed by an upper limit move, as was the case in some of those drought weather markets. You know, the, the, the year that I keep going back to I, that I think still is real important, and there's been a lot of lessons, and what's happened here so far this summer hasn't been a surprise, was 93. Right. 
because we had the flood. It came a month later, but you had a similar environment. But in 93, we had a big surge. Markets peaked out when the weather peaked out around the first part of July, and they fell hard into the latter part of July. But the point is, with the corn, we actually put our high in in January of 94. It was a grinder all the way through the fall, and I think that's still a a situation that might unfold going forward. Beans are going to be a little bit different story, I think. They were back in 93. But I think with corn, we we really don't have a good feel for acreage yet, and we've had a lot of people out here putting some numbers on yield. They're trying to put on it, and I'm going, don't get ahead of the game because we've still got a whole growing season to go yet. That reference to back in 94, was that after the final production numbers for 93 came in 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 that January report? That actually came with the January report. I don't remember if it was the day of, day after, you know, but somewhere within a real tight time frame of the January 94 report. But if you you go back and you look at the corn back in uh, uh, 1993, I think the USDA on their Projected yield in May was like 122. They dropped it down to 118 for June and July. The first actual production report in August was 116. We ended up, it was either at 101, 102 at the end. So it was this realization through the fall harvest itself, the crop isn't there. And I think that's what we got to kind of think about going forward. This time around, USDA didn't hesitate to lop off 10 bushels off of that corn yield with the... the uh assumptions plugged in in june they were a little more cautious then with the soybeans taking off a bushel in july correct uh yeah they took off a bushel in july and i think it was really just the acknowledgement there you know corn we knew we got it in the ground like corn we knew we really had shortened up the growing season and we knew that uh, coming out of the ground we weren't going to emerge real fast nor you know get ahead of the game very quickly with beans we still weren't really late, so you still had potential for a good crop. And, you know, starting where they did at 49 and a half, you know, then with the realization of the planting problems as we went through June, I think that's why they dropped another bushel off. But I'd be hesitant going much lower at this point. But they didn't jump right in and change acreage. Uh, that's, that's really a long story. You know, I mean, when you look at the USDA and we've got to understand the people that put together the supply demands and the people that actually do the estimating national ag statistics are two different groups. Um, you know, they did cut corn acreage in June. They got burnt by it because, you know, we ended up with the measurement, uh, on the June 28 report, agree or disagree that said farmers still intended to plant a lot of corn and what a lot of people forgot about those price ratios between corn and beans and those places where corn planting was going okay, farmers are going, you know, these other people are really having a problem. And so they kept planting corn. And so we we probably ended up with more acres than than people felt back in June itself, although I think the 91.7 is probably still going to come down. In the minds of producers, uh, the credibility of USDA took a hit there. A lot of complaining about it. Well, we saw that in the social media anyway. When 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 you when you look at USDA though, especially when you look at National Ag Statistics, the guy that's the group that puts out hard estimates, guess where their input comes from? Farmers. So farmers only have to go up and look in the mirror and go, hmm, gee, what did I do here? Because that's really the basis for all their estimating process. You know, WASD they were basically just using models based on historical data. 
And so that's a little bit different of a game and really isn't hard evidence in the field versus NAS. They actually measure hard evidence coming from the country. But the market sure places a lot of emphasis on those WASD numbers, even though those are assumptions that are plugged in there. And I think that's what people need to do. They need to be a little bit more careful, a little bit more realistic, you know, that those really are estimates, you know, and they're based upon models, whether you look at the supply side or the demand side, either one. You know, you got some hard evidence in there, but it's not like what the guys at NAS do that gave us the acreage report at the end of June or will start giving us the production reports because they actually work with data coming from the producer or the field. Pollination of the corn crop. That's what we always watch so closely in determining the corn yield. When is the bulk of the pollination on this 2019 corn crop? Which will be the most critical 10 to 14 day period for this crop? Oh, the next month. <laughs> yeah, that's that's truth, you know, because it you is know, hard you, to nail you, down, though, isn't it? It, it is, you know, and, but you do hit on a key valid point at this juncture. You know, I mean, we get the weekly reports that come out every Monday, have hey, crop condition and crop progress. People are looking at the condition. I think still too much. I think this year you got to be careful because the, the most important aspect of the crop, corn or beans, either one, is the progress and where we're at. Because with corn, we were 17% pollinated on the one we had last Monday. That's about two weeks behind normal. So what you're doing here, if you have a normal fall, is that you're compressing the time you can put kernels in the year or fill kernels. So we really need to pay more attention to the progress numbers, I think, this year than we do the condition ratings. How much is hanging out there in question in terms of getting it to maturity on, on the corn crop? What, have you been able to, to get your arms around what percentage of this corn crop is really going to be in jeopardy of finishing? I think a lot of it is. But again, that goes back into a normal year. Uh, a lot of people are going, what if we have an early frost? And I'm going, yeah, I don't want to play that game because early frosts tend to happen more when we have dry soils. And this year we don't have dry soils in a, in a major way anyway, although we are drying out in some areas that I'm aware. And we're going to dry out this week with the temperatures, but next week we get a little better. Um, but the question becomes in. Do we have a normal end of the growing season, and that's what you got to count on? Or do we end up with a year like 2009, for example, where well, what seemed like Christmas Day before we ever had a frost? You know, so we've got to work with the weather as we go through time because we can't look at weather into the fall other than we know where normal is, and it does put the crop at risk. The August crop report numbers coming up. It's a Monday release this time, as I recall. How big a deal will that be? And then before the market immediately then says, hey, whoop, let's check the forecast. We see this often with, with summer crop estimates. You know, the, the August report's even more interesting this year because this year we have no pot, no data that's going to become from the uh, pots in the country. Not the till September. yield sampling, right. So it's purely going to be a farmer survey. So it's going to be a matter of what farmers think about the crop. And the one thing I've started to look at a little bit here, and I really haven't defined well yet, looking at those crop condition rating numbers and trying to come up, how do they compare to the August USDA crop estimate? I wish I had the breakdown of their two models, but I don't. Nobody does. Uh, but I think it's going to be a matter of 
What did we learn there? And it's going to be what farmers think. Always good to talk to you, sir. We appreciate your input. Dale Durkholz, Grain Cycles. Grain Cycles. Watch for him. He tweets. A quick look at that rundown of the outdoor farm equipment shows. The first one coming up August 22nd through the 25th at Rantoul, Illinois. Half Century of Progress. That's a Thursday through Sunday show. Then the rest of these are uh, Tuesday through Thursday shows. Farm Progress Show in Decatur, August 27 through 29. Big Iron Show, Red River Valley Fairgrounds, West Fargo, North Dakota, September 10 through 12. The Ohio Farm Science Review in London, Ohio, September 17 through 19. And the Sunbelt Expo, Moultrie, Georgia, October 15 through 17. That's our time for the Saturday morning show. Our thanks to uh, Bob Ferguson for doing the engineering. Thanks to all of you for listening here on the 720 spot in your dial. WGN Radio Chicago. Orion Samuelson keeps you connected to the world of business and agriculture on WGN. Hear his reports weekday mornings on the Steve Cochran Show and during the noon hour on the Wintrust Business Lunch. Plus, catch Orion and Max on Saturday mornings at 5 a.m. only on Chicago's WGN Radio 720.